How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? I would encourage you to read it. I think it's Steve Belanger's favorite book. Is that right, Peggy? I don't see where he is. See that, Steve? Favorite book, right? Outside the Bible. Outside the Bible. It's a great allegory of the Christian walk. And kids, if you haven't read it, maybe you're too young, maybe ask your parents to buy some tapes of it. I know we've given our kids some CDs of Pilgrim's Progress to listen to us. They fall asleep at night. We've read it. We encourage our kids to read it. Just It's great. But if you've read it, you remember what happened to Faithful in the city of Vanity Fair. Faithful and Christian were, were on their way to the celestial city, and as Bunyan wrote, they had to pass through Vanity Fair. And these two strange-looking men were noticed by all in town. First of all, they were dressed very strangely, just wearing simple clothes rather than the pomp and circumstance that uh, those in the town wore. They spoke differently. They didn't speak the language of Canaan. They acted differently. They turned their eyes from beholding vanity. And they refused to purchase anything but the truth. And when they refused to conform to the world of Vanity Fair, they were arrested, beaten, and brought before the court. Christian and faithful were charged with, here it is, causing commotions and divisions in the town. And they simply just refused to conform and engage in their evil deeds. But the city of Vanity Fair was in an uproar. Faithful was tried first. Christian later escaped, so we only get, in Pilgrim's Progress, the trial of faithful. He was brought before the judge, whose name was Mr. Hate Good. The names of the twelve jury members were this. Mr. Blind Man, who was the foreman. Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Love Lust, Mr. Live Loose, Mr. Heady, Mr. High Mind, Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and Mr. Implacable. The odds were stacked against Faithful, obviously. Three witnesses came to make testimony. Envy, Superstition, and Pick Thank. Envy told the Lord, Hate Good, the judge. He said, O Lord, that Faithful said that Christianity and the customs of our town of vanity were diametrically opposite and could not be reconciled, by which, he said, he does at once not only commend all of our laudable doings, but he commends us in the doing of them. That was Envy's testimony. Superstition stood up and told the judge that Faithful had said that our religion was not and such by which a man could by no means please God. He addressed the judge and said, Your Lordship knows very well what necessarily will follow, that we still do worship in vain, that we still do worship in vain, and yet in our sins, and finally we shall be damned. That's what faithful tells us. And of course, that can't be right, O judge. Pick thank, told the judge that he heard faithful speak against our noble Prince Beelzebub and other honorable friends in the town, like the Lord Old Man, and the Lord Carnal Delight, and the Lord Luxurious, and the Lord Desire of Vainglory, and the Lord Lechery, and and the Sir Having Greedy. He spoke against these people. At this point, with these witnesses giving this testimony, Faithful was given an opportunity then to defend himself, which he did very well, clarifying exactly what he said, 
and what he didn't say. And you notice all these people kind of took the truth and twisted it a bit. But the jury, with a heart set against faithful, found him guilty. And the climax came when the jury foreman, Mr. Blindman, said, and see if you can catch the irony here, says, I see clearly that this man is a heretic. Mr. Blindman says, I see, yeah. Anyway, faithful was then handed over to the authorities to be put to the most cruel death that could be invented. He was scourged with whips, lanced with knives, stoned with stones, pricked with swords, burned to ashes at the stake, and he was indeed faithful unto death. Now, I tell you that story because the parallels between what took place with faithful and Vanity Fair are abundant with the parallels that took place with Jesus Christ and His trial. Oh, the names of the jury were different. More like names like Abraham and Isaac and Shomar and things like that. Oh, the charges against Jesus were a bit different. The exact sentence pronounced was different. The death He died was a bit different. But overall, the same exact thing took place. Jesus Christ came into this world. He was light in a dark place. He confronted the world with its practices and lawless deeds. And as a result, the world leaders, authorities of that day came to hate Jesus. And finally, they captured Him. They gave Him an unfair trial, distorting His words, misrepresenting Him, and doing all that they could do to justify themselves in finding Him guilty. And like faithful, Jesus too was put to death, to the most cruel death that could be invented, the Roman cross, suffocating over hours. That's what the Roman cross is about. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're beginning this morning where we left off last week. We left off last week in verse 56. We pick it up in verse 57 where we will read today about the religious trial of Jesus. Jesus actually had two trials. He had a religious trial and he had a a Roman trial. The reason for that is pretty simple because Rome governed the area of Palestine and Israel at the time, giving the Israelites, though, much freedom and liberality to have a a measure of self-rule that they could decide their disputes among themselves. Those who were criminals, they could deal with on their own. However, when it came to a, a case where death was involved, capital punishment, they brought, they had to bring the case before the Romans. So first the trial before the religious people found him guilty, condemning him to death, and then they brought him to the Romans ultimately to see him die. Today we're going to examine the religious trial. In a few weeks we'll see the Roman trial. Read along with me there in your Bibles. Matthew 26, verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter also was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find any even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? 
What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? There's the religious trial. I want to focus our attention first upon the courtroom. It's really how the, the text lays itself out. We see the courtroom in the first two verses. Jesus comes bound as a prisoner, entering the courtroom to face his trial. As he enters, he sees Caiaphas, the high priest, sitting as judge. And he sees the Sanhedrin all around sitting as jury. Now, from the Gospel of John... We know that before this actually took place, that Jesus went first to Annas, the former high priest and father-in-law of Caiaphas. While he was there, Annas questioned him briefly just to see what he is about. He knew what he was about to try to question and try to pin him. And then once he, he spent some time with him, he sent him on to this, which is actually the second phase of the religious trial of Jesus. I believe that it was while Jesus was with Annas that there was a bunch of scurrying about in the town of Jerusalem, trying to amass and bring the Sanhedrin together. For it was in the middle of the night, somewhere probably past midnight at this time. Torches were giving light to the courtyard. And while Jesus was with Annas, I believe his members of the Sanhedrin were awakened. Hey, we caught Jesus. Why don't you come? We're going to hold a trial tonight. And they would awaken out of bed and would have been summoned. Now, there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. These are religious leaders, priests and teachers and elders. We don't know exactly how many of them made it. Maybe some were out of town. Maybe some couldn't make it for some reason. But we know at least 23 were there because 23 was a quorum. But my guess is that every leader showed up. I mean, you don't hear about the biggest trial of your lifetime only not to show up. No, you come. I don't care what kind of sleep you're lacking. You will come and help decide this case. So Jesus comes into this courtroom. It's really a courtyard. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Torches all over the place, giving it some light, flickering. And as he, he walks in there, he gazes into the eyes of Caiaphas, who he knew, certainly, of, at least. He knew the Sanhedrin, people of the Sanhedrin. I mean, think about it. Jesus grew up as a Jewish boy, as a Jewish man, coming back often to the temple, perhaps as much as even three times a year from up north, from Galilee. And as he was there asking questions and learning and teaching these, certainly there were many of the prominent priests and scribes that he got to know personally. And as he looked there across all the Sanhedrin, he saw and recognized many faces of these men. He had taught them in the synagogues. They had come and asked him questions back and forth. Furthermore, I mean, you can even think, Jesus knew the, the politics of the day. He knew these, who these people were. I mean, you can compare the Sanhedrin perhaps to our Senate with a religious twist, I think is what was assembled here. This trial, as I said, actually wasn't in a courtroom. It was more in a courtyard. 
Luke tells us that this took place in the home of Caiaphas. Apparently, Caiaphas, being the high priest, lived in a, a larger sort of home where he had a, a courtyard, which was typical back then to, to have, where he could meet, we could have himself, he could have 70 of the Sanhedrin, and he could also have many other people around. If you look even in 58, it says, Peter was following Jesus at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and he entered in. So that means that Peter was there and presumably even maybe a bunch of people from this mob that arrested Jesus had come and followed him all the way through the streets of Jerusalem into Caiaphas, the high priest. This is probably a packed courtyard. SRO, standing room only. It's a bold move on Peter's part. Those in the courtyard were hostile to Jesus. This wasn't a kind court. And those who were present... Perhaps there were some who were present who saw Peter cut off Malchus's ear and knew and saw. And, and even for Peter to associate himself with Jesus was a dangerous thing. And we will see next week how Peter crumbled under that. But it was a bold thing of him and he is to be commended by staying so close. We read in verse 56 last week that all the disciples left him and fled. But Peter was still lagging on there. Perhaps even, Lord, if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. Still being bold. It's very commendable for what Peter was. But here was Jesus, captured, standing before the synagogue, this Sanhedrin, in a hasty trial at night. Now is their chance to destroy him. And they tried to destroy him. First, by bringing witnesses. We've seen the courtroom. Let's look next to the witnesses. It says in verse 59 the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Now, from the start, the trial of Jesus was not about justice. That was not the purpose here. They weren't interested in discovering the truth. They weren't interested with discerning the facts of the case. There was no due process in this whole affair. In their minds, they knew they want to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. And they would use any means possible to remove Him from their midst. In this case, I mean, it's so obvious. Verse 59 says that they tried to obtain false testimony against Jesus. They were willing to hear anybody say anything in hope that a due reason might be found to condemn Jesus. I mean, think about their heart. Their hearts were so against Jesus that they were just looking for a fault in Him. Whatever they could find, they were going to take and, and maximize and exploit. And how typical that is to human nature you know, when your heart is against someone, you will see the bad that they do and you'll miss the good. In fact, if your heart is against someone, you will seek out their faults and you'll let your mind dwell upon the things that they are bad. And whenever they do anything, you'll interpret it in an unfavorable light. Did you see what they did? Did you hear what they said? I can't believe that look that they gave me. Right? And, and though the good they do, it, it's much. In your eyes, if you're against them, it becomes little. And though the evil they do is little, in your eyes, it will become much if you're against people. That's exactly opposite of love. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things. Right? That's love. Love will look at the little good in your mind and will make it huge. And love will see the great evil in your mind and will make it small. 
See, when your heart is for someone, the transgression against you matters not. When you see or hear of something bad, love works hard to justify them in your sight. Like you hear something and see something. What he did hurt me. But you know what? I'll bear it gladly because I love him. I can't believe what she said. Surely, maybe there's got to be some other reason. Love will make excuses for someone to try to justify why they said that what they did. I heard what so-and-so did, but I hope, I hope, I just, I hope, I believe there's some kind of explanation for that. That's love, and hate is the opposite. Hate will have a mind that seeks to find what is, whatever little is evil, and will exploit that absolutely. That's what the Sanhedrin were doing. Their heart was set against Jesus. They were seeking to get rid of them. And they were taking even false witnesses. Even they were gathering any kind of evidence they could to try to get Jesus. In fact, even it's mentioned over in chapter 27, verse 18. Pilate saw what was going on. Everybody saw what was going on. It was obvious to all. Pilate knew, chapter 27, verse 18, that because of envy, they had delivered him up. The idea we get from the text here this morning is that witness after witness after witness came forward. The New American Standard Translation is really good. The whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony. Tried one, and they tried again, and they tried again. No three strikes, you're out. They continued on and on and on, and it was a, a batting slump for sure. We don't know how these witnesses were obtained. Maybe the Sanhedrin announced to the crowd, Do any of you have anything against Jesus? I don't think they were saying, anybody have something good to say about Jesus? That wasn't their motive. Do you have anything to say about him? Anything against him? We know he needs to be condemned. Can you think of that? Maybe they had formed a list of people living in Jerusalem who were known to say some bad things about Jesus. And maybe during the trial when they were assembling the Sanhedrin, maybe they're knocking on the other doors. Hey, I remember you said this bad about Jesus. Will you come to the trial tonight and give testimony? I'm sure many people were willing because Jesus confronted their sin, mostly religious people. Maybe there were friends of the Sanhedrin who went to search parties throughout the street saying, hey, did you hear Jesus is on trial? Do you have anything to say against Him? Why don't you show up at the trial? Just walk down the street. I'm sure you can say something. I wouldn't be surprised at all if some money was slipped under the table to bring people here. But catch this. None of the testimony stuck. None of it. Verse 60 tells us that they did not find any And I put in here incriminating evidence against him, even though many false witnesses came forward. Now, according to the Old Testament law, this council needed at least two witnesses to convict Jesus of a crime. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says this, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter should be confirmed. And so they were really in 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 a puzzle there. Right? I, I could just even imagine the, the line of witnesses that came forward and one witness would, would come and say one thing and then the other witness would try to substantiate that but would you know, be contradictory. Maybe it got a different place and location or maybe Jesus did something different and it, was, it had to have been actually very obviously contradictory because even if it was just close, they'd just say, ah, there it is. But it must have just been plainly obvious to all that even those with a hard heart saw the discrepancy. But one after one, a witness would come forth, give testimony. 
And another one would come and invalidate that. And they tried again and tried again and tried and tried and tried again. And the sense we get here from 61 is that finally two witnesses came forward that agreed. And here was their charge. This man stated, verse 61, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the other man stood right behind, beside him and said, yes, that's what he said. I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And maybe they had some... Uh, other evidence. I remember it was, yeah, it was during the feast, you know, a year ago. I remember. And we were standing on the corner. Remember that? And, and all these facts were established. And they were elated. Finally, they could condemn him to death. Because he said, I'm able to destroy the temple in three days. Build it up again. So we come now to the charge. It's really interesting that up to this point, Jesus wasn't formally charged. The Jewish legal system is much like our system today. In fact, I spoke with a, a lawyer uh, just about, you know, this Jewish trial and just do you have any comments about things? And here's the thing he said. He said in studying Jewish trials and studying this, he said that many of our judicial practices are exactly the same as Old Testament Jewish practices as well. When you think about, you know, a fair trial, you think about, you know, before you're, you know, we have a, a trial before... Twelve jury members who are peers. You know, we think about um, different things. Everything was true here, and there's so many things that they did against Jesus, like even hastily at night. I mean, that wouldn't happen today, and it was just as illegal back then. But anyway, it's interesting here that the charge against Jesus, the thing they're going to condemn to death, normally in, in our society comes first, right? We bring so and so in. You got him before the jury, and he's saying, "Okay, this is what we're charging this person for, for you know such and such." Okay, now let's look at the evidence. They did everything backwards because they didn't even have a charge in their mind. They just said, is there any evidence against somebody? Is there any evidence? And then finally it comes up here that uh, that's what Jesus said. And if somebody in a courtroom in America would say, well, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God, rebuild it in three days. Maybe there have been an American lawyer that said, objection, your honor. This testimony is entirely irrelevant. It's unrelated to the issue at hand. But in the trial of Jesus, it didn't matter. Any type of testimony that they could possibly get, they would use. And when here was an opportunity to turn against Jesus, they did. But think with me about this accusation against Jesus, okay? Is that really such a crime? To say, I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Is that a crime? In the age of terrorism... Like we are today, ever since 9-11, you might be arrested in America for saying such a thing like that. I'm able to destroy the Pentagon in three, you know, able to destroy the Pentagon, pen, Pentagon and in three days build it back up again. You might be arrested today in light of 9-11. But it's only been recent years, really, that that has escalated and come to our imagination. But in the days of Jesus, nobody was capable of destroying the, the largest, most glorious building in all of Jerusalem by himself. It was ridiculous. No one could do that. And then, to think about rebuilding again, I mean, that was certain insanity. In fact, when Jesus first said these words in John chapter 2, that's the sense the people had. Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews responded to him saying, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. You know, it's ridiculous. Jesus, you are crazy. That's what they were saying. 
And notice also that even there might be a charge to say, you know, even Jesus said, I will destroy it. Technically, he just said, destroy it and I'll build it up again. Not talking, he's going to destroy it. He's just saying, if it's destroyed, if you do it. So even he didn't even threat to destroy anything. Another fabrication where his words were a little bit wrong. But Jesus wasn't crazy. In fact, the book of John, we get clarification. Jesus wasn't talking about the the big temple. He's talking about the temple of his body. Referring to the resurrection. Destroy the temple of my body and three days I will raise it up again. That's what Jesus was saying. But here is the charge. Verse 61. Here's the charge. Verse 62. We find the high priest standing up and saying to Jesus, he thinks he's got all wrapped up. Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? We have you now. What are you going to say about yourself? Here's, here's your charge. At this moment in the trial, all was silent. The focus of everyone's attention was upon Jesus. So let's try to reenact that. Let me say what the judge says and let's all be quiet like we're listening to Jesus, right? Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And Jesus said nothing. At this point, Jesus could have explained his words. He could have clarified how it's not exactly right. Here's what I said. I was talking about my body. I wasn't talking about the temple. I didn't ever threaten to tear down the temple. Just said if it was. In doing so, the Sanhedrin probably would have gone back to seek other testimony. Okay, that didn't work. Let's seek more. Let's seek more. Their hearts were so hard against him. But Jesus chose to remain silent. Perhaps the charge was so ridiculous, Jesus chose not to answer. But whatever reason, his silence was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. He remained perfectly silent. When accused and oppressed, he just said, I'm not going to retort. Now you step back and I want you to think about this for a moment before we even continue on the implications of this. Of all the things that Jesus did, of all the things that Jesus said, nobody was able to accuse Jesus of anything. There was nothing that anyone could say, Jesus did this wrong. I think about my... People could come up to my life and say, Steve did this wrong. Like, yeah, easy. And maybe your life as well. Oh, so-and-so did this wrong. But against Jesus, they couldn't do anything. It was only a matter of what he said that they could get against him and had to resort to some obscure statement about the temple. And really, one of the things this teaches us is about the innocence of Jesus Christ. The requirement for the law for sacrifices in the Old Testament was an unblemished animal. It could be no defect in the animal. It couldn't be lame or blind or have any type of physical blemish. And the same is true of Jesus Christ. For Him to be our sacrifice, it was necessary for Him to be blameless and innocent. In fact, we will see this is one of the big issues in the Roman trial in Matthew 23, verse 27, verse 23. Pilate will stand before everybody and say, what evil has he done? He'll wash his hands and say, I'm innocent. This is an innocent man. And that testimony comes through loud and clear in these trials. And here in the religious trial, the innocence of Jesus is clearly seen 
and their lack of ability to find anything wrong in him except this obscure statement that he professed to make. It shows you how desperate the Sanhedrin was in seeking to destroy Jesus. They're willing to take the most unrelated testimony and use it to their advantage. Now, I do believe that one of the benefits of the silence of Jesus is that it forced the high priest to get down to the main issue. <clears throat> He'd seen the accusations which had came were trivial. He saw this stuff. He said, well, let's just get down to it. And by the way, broke the law. You can't self-incriminate yourself in Hebrew law, Jewish law, nor in American. You know, we can plead the fifth. So I don't want to self-incriminate myself. And the high priest said to him, verse 63, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. At this point, the high priest asked Jesus the most straightforward question of them all. Are you the Messiah? That's what he said. Note, at this point, even still they're looking for a, a crime to, to charge him with. <clears throat> now, on several other occasions, Jesus had revealed himself that he was indeed the Messiah. I think the first time he did so was early on in his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, he came into the synagogue to teach back there in Nazareth where he'd always been from. He asked for the scroll of Isaiah to be given to him. And he, he rolled the scroll to the very end, which we know as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And then he read those famous words about how the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, he put it away, sat down and said, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me because I'm the Messiah. And don't think that it was lost in the people there in Nazareth. They knew He was claiming to be Messiah. And all the synagogue was filled with rage and tried to kill Him. Another time He revealed Himself as being Messiah. In John chapter 4, He had a conversation with a sinful Samaritan woman. She came to draw water. They got into this theological conversation that like goes all over the place. And then finally, this woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, and when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. At that point, Jesus said, I who speak to you am He. Revealing Himself to be the Messiah. Though He did reveal Himself, He kept it, he kept it hidden and veiled a little bit. On another occasion... Recorded in Matthew 16, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, north of, of Galilee, with His disciples. He said, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man is? They said, gave various things, prophet, John the Baptist, Elijah. Then Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, Peter, you're right, but don't tell anybody, because we can't let this out. Though Jesus did let it out. Okay? In fact, there was one time, as Jesus continued His ministry, becoming more and more obvious He was the Messiah... The Jews said to him in John chapter 10, verse 24, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I told you, and you do not believe. I told you, you don't believe. So even, there, even though his messianic office was, was veiled, still he told them, but they still didn't believe. Now Jesus, though, stands for the high priest. Again, the question is asked. The most powerful, most strongest, sacred oath that could utter, I adjure you by the living God. He is telling him 
to swear by God, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Jesus, what is it? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And his response is really similar to before. It's plain as could be. He said, you have said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. These words you have said it might seem a bit elusive, but Mark's account of the same story, Jesus says, I am. Clearly saying, I am the Messiah. Just straightforward in answer as you can give, unmistakable clarity, Jesus confessed who he was. And make note, the Jewish people can never claim that their Messiah didn't make it plain to their forefathers who exactly He was. Because at this moment, Jesus revealed Himself as clear as anybody could know. See, the issue with Jesus of Jesus' day is not that they didn't know who the Messiah was. The issue was that they refused to believe, right? Remember John 10, 25? I told you and you don't believe. And the issue today isn't that people know, it's that they don't believe. This past weekend, I told you earlier in the service that I went to my 20th high school reunion. Had an informal gathering on Friday night, had a more formal gathering on Saturday night. So two nights with these graduates. Of the 300 graduates in my class, about 100 of them returned. Returned from all over the world. I met a good friend who's been living in Hong Kong. One who's been living in, um, in, in France. She's now actually in Geneva on the France side of that. Had a good opportunity to speak with many people of what the Lord has done in my life. I mean, it's just, it, was, it was a great opportunity for evangelism. He said, Steve, what have you been up to? I said, well, I pastor a church. And the response of people was all very interesting. I told them often, again and again, Yvonne's witness, how many times, just what the Lord has done in my life, how this church in Rockford got started, how the Lord you know, really opened my eyes to many things of the Bible. And I was really saddened, actually, by the coldness of many of them. I mean, you, you think you talk about church, if they're religiously interested at all, they'll like maybe go there. And just some people, I mean, just a uh, blank stare on their face saying, oh, that's, that's good for you, I guess. And carried on. And, and you even saw that, Yvonne, just the, the coldness of the people was amazing. But here, here's an issue, though. For these people, it's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of belief. I talked with many who I knew went to church growing up. They knew about Jesus. They knew some of the claims. Oh, maybe they don't know it all. But the issue is they don't believe. You know, I was especially encouraged with one gal who chased me down. You know, we had a, we, we were given a, a form we wanted to fill out. Um, you know, just say, what have you been up to the last 20 years? And I didn't know. I was thinking, about, well, I'll use this as a great opportunity to share my testimony. You know, and so I wrote this, I don't know, five-paragraph kind of kind of letter sharing my testimony right out there. Everyone else's entry were like, you know, real small. You page through this thing, mine's like the biggest of all of them. And uh, I just told them what God is doing in my life. And this one gal came up and she said, boy, I looked through there and um, I, I saw what you did. And I just wanted to come up and, and talk to you and just say how encouraged I was by what you wrote. And just to say that, you know, I'm a Christian too. And we go to this church and we... Sat and talked for probably about 10, 15 minutes. It was very encouraging. But for the most part, most people I talked to, blank stares. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of, of faith. It's interesting. Also, the Lord gave abundant opportunities just even to talk to people. But beforehand, I was asked to pray 
before our meal last night. And uh, just even talking to Vaughn, kind of driving the way in, just think about, you know, I pray before the congregation often. I don't have a problem praying publicly, but when you think about praying before a group of people who many you know are hardened to the gospel, what are you going to say? And I want to use an opportunity for the gospel. And so here is basically my prayer. I, I didn't want to pray long, you know. I prayed maybe 90 seconds, 60 seconds. Uh, 90, it, was, it was real short. And I just, I prayed about God's kindness to all of us to sustain us for 20 years. And then I prayed Moses on them. Psalm 90, teach us to number our days we might present to you a heart of wisdom. And then I prayed that we would see the necessity of worshiping God who's revealed Himself in creation and in Jesus Christ. And I said that someday all of us will bow the knee to Jesus, either willingly or unwillingly, in my prayer. And then I prayed that we would thankfully eat of the food. That's what I prayed. And my heart was to use that platform whatever way I could just to be a testimony for Him. Use it 90 seconds most efficiently as possible. My wife's testimony afterwards when I was mixed... I forget what you said. I mixed grace and kindness with the truth and confronting things. And I wanted to press upon their minds the future. There were 20 years postgraduate from high school. But just in a few years, we're going to have to deal with eternity and bow before the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And now's the time to deal with it. My prayer was exactly what Jesus did before the Sanhedrin. Look what Jesus said. I am the Messiah, but hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on clouds of heaven. In other words, Jesus says this, looks like you all are in control today. You're judging me. You're standing around. I'm right in the middle. I'm being condemned. I'm bound, looking helpless before you. You're a hostile crowd looking to condemn me. But there will be a day, he said, when the tables are turned. And when I will be the one coming back in great glory and honor in the power of my kingdom, and you will be judged by me, is what he said. He mixes several very familiar Old Testament quotations of the Messiah coming to rule and reign. Psalm 110 pictures Messiah at the right hand of God, a place of power and authority. Daniel 9 pictures Messiah returning to claim His everlasting, all-powerful kingdom. And upon hearing this, the people there would have no doubt what Jesus was saying. He said, yes, I am the Messiah, and let me describe to you who the Messiah is and what I'm going to do. He's going to come back in pure reign and majesty. It's a truth that we all need to deal with. We need to deal with the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back And you will either bow your knee to Him lovingly and willingly as the one you worshipped even today, or you'll be forced to bow to the Almighty King, forced to utter lips of praise, and then cast into hell. That's the ultimate reality of life. What Jesus said to the Sanhedrin, the things that they will deal with someday, the very same things that we need to deal with someday. Well, it was clear to the high priest what he said. Verse 65, we see the high priest tearing his robes. Okay, now here he comes. Now we finally get to the charge. He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Talking to the Sanhedrin. What do you think? No deliberations here. Okay, No privately going over all the facts. Just right then and there, the whole Sanhedrin said... He is deserving of death. 
the ripping of the clothes was a sign of sorrow. In the Old Testament, here the high priest tore his clothes to show his sorrow at the blasphemy of Jesus. But the sad thing was that he was not sorrowful. This was hypocrisy at its height. He was rejoicing inside. Finally, we've captured him and finally he's convicted himself. And really, it's at this point that the great irony of this text comes in, which helps us, I think, to believe and to understand the main point of this passage. The religious leaders rightly discerned that Jesus was the Messiah. And in fact, it was the very fact that Jesus himself claimed to be the Messiah that caused the Jews to send him to Rome to be killed. Jesus wasn't killed for some misdemeanor. He wasn't killed for some other issue. He was killed because of his claim to be the Messiah. So you say, why did Jesus die? He died for being the Messiah. The Jews got it all right. They understood it perfectly. Jesus is the Messiah. The problem is they didn't believe it and thus they got it all wrong. See, they had their own idea what Messiah would be like. When Jesus came upon the scene, they they looked at their own idea of what what Messiah would be like and matched it up against Jesus, and it it didn't match. And so rather than searching the Scriptures and evaluating the words of Jesus to see that the Messiah certainly is grand and glorious, but He's going to come and and suffer and be a servant, rather than processing through some of those texts, they didn't want that. They, They just wanted Messiah to come and rule and reign. That's not what Jesus was. Obviously, He wasn't the Messiah, and so they missed God's man and destroyed Him instead. And I just can't help at this point to stress that they got it right, but in the end... And they got it wrong. You know, the Jews at this point remind me a little bit of Amelia Bedelia. Some of you kids know who Amelia Bedelia is? Yeah, some of you know. Some of you adults know who Amelia Bedelia is, thanks to the kids. You know, she's one who gets it all right, but gets it all wrong, right? She was a maid, came to help Mr. and Mrs. Rogers do their work, and Mrs. Rogers gave her a long list of things to do. And one of the things that was on her list was to dust the furniture. And Amelia said to herself, Did you ever hear tell of such a silly thing? At my house, we undust the furniture. But to each his own way. And so she went to the bathroom, found some dusting powder, and began to shower dust all around the furniture. She's dancing on the couches and dust all around. She said, Well, I hope that will do. Another thing she was told was to you know, draw the drapes when the sun comes in. You know, so as to protect the couch from the... So, so when the sun came in, she said, oh, this is very pretty, you know. And so she got out her sketch pad of paper and she drew the drapes. Another thing on the list was to put the lights out when you finished the living room. So Amelia went through the whole house, unscrewed all the light bulbs and put them out on the clothesline. And she said to herself, so those things need to be aired out too? Just like pillows and babies? Oh, I do have a lot to learn. She got it exactly right but got it exactly wrong. That's the Jews. They understood quite clearly that Jesus was the Messiah, yet they didn't understand it. They didn't believe it. And we ought not to be surprised. It was prophesied that this would take place. Isaiah 53. We ourselves, we Jews to whom our Messiah came, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus prophesied in the parables. Why he spoke in parables? It was so that 
While seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, Jesus taught them so they might hear, but not hear. They might see, but not see. And so it's also true of the Messiah. Though they saw, though they understood, they didn't see. They didn't understand. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, None of the rulers of this age has understood God's wisdom. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, they didn't understand it. So they crucified Him. Even though they got it right, they still crucified Him. And then in verses 67 and 68, we see even the mocking come forth. Just even thinking this morning, maybe making this another point, the mocking. They spat in His face. Just a cruel insult. They beat Him with their fists. I mean, imagine. They, they were hitting Him with their own fists. Hitting Him in the face. They were slapping Him. And they said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Just deriding Him. Demeaning Him. He said, who is the one that hit you? Perhaps even at this time, you know, they, they blindfolded him. One of the gospel accounts talk about how he's blindfolded and, and he hit. And, and being so, who is it to hit you? If you really are the Messiah that you claim to be, why don't you prove it, Messiah? You should be all-knowing. You should know all this stuff. And what did Jesus do? He didn't revile in return. He took it and he suffered. And why did he do that? He did it for our sins. He claimed to be the Messiah. They knew he was Messiah. Then they ridiculed him. And still Jesus submitted himself to the will of God. Even though, I, I think at this point, he could have changed the whole tables around. But he didn't. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. Though he had 12 legion of angels at his disposal, instead he let this take place. And glory be to God, he did. Right? This is the greatest evil that ever took place. The only innocent man ever to walk the planet received the most unjust, illegal trial was condemned even though he was absolutely innocent. But praise be to God because it was his sinless sacrifice that then became our sinful sacrifice for us, right? Second Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of this right here that Christ Jesus was innocent but took our sin so that we might be guilty and get his righteousness and stand before him pure and blameless and holy that day. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I would pray in all things that we might never realize the gravity of this moment when Jesus was on trial. Being condemned, God, for the very things that He ought to have been received for being the Messiah Himself. I pray that today, even as we have looked and reflected upon the unjust trial that took place before these religious people, we might realize that it all was necessary for our salvation. For apart from the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And bulls and goats never take away sin. But it's only Jesus Christ, the perfect, righteous sacrifice that was able with full finality to take away our sins. I pray that we would see of what a blessing that we have to stand before you, sins entirely wiped away, not having to account for any of them.
because Jesus accounted for them by grace through faith in Christ alone. May that be where our glory is and our hope and our trust and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.